In Matthew 4:19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Join us in this conversation as we discuss following Jesus, leadership, and doing life with others. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. My name is Beth Laurie. I'm your host. I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Kevin Watson. Hi, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have Kevin with us. Kevin uh, received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma, his Master's of Divinity from Wesley Theological Seminary, and his Ph.D. from Southern Methodist University. He's an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. Kevin is a very popular speaker uh, and author. He has publications, including a new one that just came out called Perfect Love 2021. Um, He also has several other books that I've read and so enjoyed, The Blueprint of Disciple, let's see, The Blueprint for Discipleship, um, The Band Meetings and the Class Meetings. Um, He has served recently as the professor of Wesley and Methodist Studies at Emory University Candler School of Theology, but he has recently moved out to Texas, and he's affiliate research professor at Baylor University's Theological Seminary and also pastor of discipleship at the First United Methodist Church of Waco, Texas. So, Kevin, wow, just you have so much wealth of knowledge. I can't wait for us to talk here today. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, and I always just love to hear people's stories. So I wonder if you would just share a little bit about your own journey, maybe just a four or five minute uh, story about how you became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Yeah, um, when I was in middle school, I had uh, one of my closest friends just kind of started inviting me to, to go to church with him on uh, his, I think it was specifically Sunday evening and sometimes Wednesday. And he had a, a church kind of youth group event. That was, um, I found that one to be a little overwhelming. It was, it met the kind of stereotype, very like large group. It was one of the sort of cool youth groups in, in the town that I lived in. Uh, and also like very like games and pizza centered, um, but there was also a Bible study that he had that he was a part of that met before school um, early in the morning that he invited me to that I started attending. And uh, the the kind of key point for me was going and this was a I, I love this detail. It was a Southern Baptist church that he was he was a part of. And uh, he invited me to go on a retreat. Uh, and I I remember so I, I, I decided to go on this retreat. It was a lot of fun. And, and uh, one morning they had kind of time for you to have kind of one on one devotions just to spend some time in reading scripture and prayer by yourself. And it was a rainy morning and I was kind of sitting on a ledge. My feet were hanging off the side. And, um, and I remember just like I, the, the talk the night before kind of just playing in my mind. And, and I just felt like it was kind of a moment of decision. Like, do you, do you want to give your life to Christ and, and seek to follow him and, and receive his, his love and forgiveness? And, and it, it was sort of like, it's not that hard of a decision, but it, it was it was a decision that needed to be made nevertheless. And and so I I remember sort of like, I don't know if I'm doing this right, but like walking through it and and, and things seemed different from that point forward. And I, I remember uh, for me, the one of the kind of big steps, there were several things that kind of happened along the way. I remember I would, I would sometimes bring my, it, it seemed like it was important that I have my Bible and, and read it as much as I could. So I started bringing it to school in my backpack and would sometimes read it on the bus. And 
knew I was pretty image conscious at that point. Um, and I, I knew that wasn't like a cool thing to do, but I was trying to like put faithfulness first. And so sometimes read scripture on, on the way to or from school. I had a, a really long bus ride at, at that time, more than 30 minutes each way. So there was time to do other things. And, uh, and then when I, when I went to college, I started working with the high school youth and went on a youth trip. And I remember having some friends, this was over spring break. We went on a mission trip to Mexico and uh, the group that I was in was building a, a an extra room at a, a school in one of the, the border communities in, in Mexico. And uh, I, I had friends who were going skiing in Colorado over spring break. And I had friends who were going to the beach in Florida. And I remember thinking like, wow, I'm such a good Christian because instead of doing really fun things uh, with friends, uh, I'm going to hang out with high schoolers and I'm going to, you know, go serve Jesus. And I, I there was definitely some, some pride um, in that, but on that trip, like the, the love of God for the people I was serving, even though very imperfectly myself, like the love of God for them was so palpable and clear to me in a way I'd never experienced. And, and it was like that, reflected back to me. And so the, the love of God that I'd read about in scripture and understood in a, in a certain way, but it was like, it, 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 I I experienced it in a new dimension. And I realized on that trip, this is the most fulfilling, meaningful thing I could possibly have done this week. Uh, And by the end of that trip, I had a clear sense of calling to, to give my life and service to Christ and his church. Uh, And so applied to seminaries and, and so forth. And it was in seminary. This is the last kind of key piece, I think, in, in kind of how these things came together. I always had a deep sense that if you're a Christian, it require you, you're giving yourself as completely to Jesus as you can. Um, the way that I've heard people say it since then, that I wouldn't have said when I was in middle school or high school, but that if Jesus is savior, he also is Lord of your life, um, that you don't get to just take like the salvation part and not actually let Jesus be Lord of your life. And when I was in seminary and took Methodist history and doctrine, uh, I remember the, the lecture on entire sanctification and Christian perfection that, that my professor Doug Strong gave. And it was like this, this sort of all these things that I kind of knew intuitively, but didn't have words for it was like, he just laid out and discussing the whole way of salvation. I was like, yeah, this is why I have felt the sense of like nothing. I don't get to like protect anything from Jesus. Like it's all his. And I need to like, the goal is to try to figure out how to, how to live faithfully in every way and every part of my life. Um, and, and so it felt like this, this is home. Like this, that was the first time I like really got like, yes, I am definitely a Wesleyan. This, this makes sense to me. And, um, and so, so then, then it was since then, like, living it out as best I can and, and trying to, to learn how to more completely rely on the grace of God, not just day by day, but moment by moment. Oh, wow. What a lovely story just to hear how he, uh, got a hold of your heart that way. And then really, uh, now a hold of all of your life. It sounds like you're, you're yeah. not only your mind fully, uh, with his, but like you said, willing to live it out, um, in all aspects of your life, uh, knowing what that looks like. Uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's always so encouraging to hear testimonies of God's work in our yeah. lives. Yeah, it is. Well, uh, and you brought up this, the uh, Wesley and his, you know, sort of the methods, the Methodism comes from methods. Um, and I just would love for you to share with us, like, he had this 
you know, approach sort of of how to help people grow spiritually and live that out, that faithfulness you talked about. And so what are these methods or what what was he, you know, starting us off with when he put that all together? Yeah. So the way that as I've worked on this, um, I guess about 15 years or so now um, in, in a sort of pretty focused academic way, the the way I've, I've I think been able to kind of crystallize it is that being a Methodist is a commitment to following Jesus in a very specific kind of particular way. And that, that my sense has been that um, the part of the church I've been in the United Methodist church, like writ large, especially at its highest levels of leadership has actually wanted to pivot to like the biggest vision possible, kind of the big tent vision for Methodism. But my reading of Methodism as a historical tradition and when it's been the most spirit-filled and and powerful, uh, been the most fruitful, it's actually focused really specifically on the details and that it's accountability to the specificity, to the particulars. So the method, it starts in part with the general rules, which was this document written uh, in the late 1730s the full title is The Nature, Design, and General Rules of Our United Societies. Um, and it's it's been condensed to a slogan in our, our kind of more recent time um, because of a, a very influential book that Bishop Reuben Job uh, wrote, who has has since gone on to his eternal reward. And it was, it was I want to be clear, I'm, I'm very grateful that Bishop Job wrote that book because the general rules, no one knew what they were at all. And he brought them kind of back into to Methodist consciousness through his work. Um, but I think more the sort of desire that his book came out at a time when the Methodist publishing house and Cokesbury were really struggling financially. And so there was a way in which that was marketed in ways that probably weren't his, his intention or desire that I think like, conf- like distra- detracted them to slogans, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. But the general rules were actually a detailed list of rules. They were literally like, so do no harm wasn't just a general like slogan. It actually was such as, and then it listed like 15 specific things that you could not do if you were a Methodist. And that's actually what I think is the method of Methodism. It's not an aspiration to not do harm. It is that we actually have clarity about how we don't do harm. That if you are, if you are seen intoxicated in public we know that you're doing harm. And, and the first step is accountability. But if there's, if there is repeated kind of persistent, uh, I, I desire to be intoxicated or I'm not willing to, to stop drinking, then you're removed from Methodism. So Wesley ends it uh, by, by saying that, that we can measure the, the fruit of the, intens- the intention. So the general rules is actually just a desire to flee from the wrath to come to be saved from your sin. So it's a desire to be saved. It isn't even actually for people who have been saved. Uh, it's it's a wanting to know Christ and, and pursue Jesus. And so anybody's welcome who has that desire, but the sincerity of the desire, Wesley thought, could be measured by your, your actions, your willingness to already start not doing these things, doing these positive, specific things that are broken out into specific concrete acts of, of love and service towards neighbor, and then specific practice of the means of grace or spiritual disciplines, reading scripture, praying, attending worship. And so Wesley thinks he can say, if you're not doing those things, or if you're doing the things we've agreed not to do, then the fruit shows actually that you are not earnest or sincere or serious in your desire to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved from your sins. And then the general rules actually ends with saying, if 
if someone persists in violating these this this communal sort of agreement, this covenant, um, then they'll be removed from Methodism. Uh, and so there's there's this kind of quality control piece in a sense that where people who are moving in a specific direction to to the heavenly country, uh, and we know that we're going there because we're we're connected to each other, living the same way of life. And then the other big piece, a, a little bit more briefly, we can we can talk about more as you as you'd like to, Beth, is the accountability for that happened not just at the sort of broad general church level but it happened at the level of small groups so every methodist was uh connected to a class meeting and class meetings were groups of about seven people i mean seven to twelve people who were sometimes had men and women in them together and sometimes were divided by gender but didn't have to be and they basically met to to they would be held accountable for the general rules if they were known to violate them or if they were struggling with them it'd be a place to discuss that but the primary question was how does your soul prosper or how is your life with god like how are you doing really as a follower of jesus and in that context methodists learned to 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 live out their faith in community but also to to look at their life through the lens of the gospel like what is god doing in my life and am i cooperating with what god's wanting to do or am i resisting it and and rebelling against it so that was i would say that's kind of the like core of the method is a communal approach to the christian life that is actually lived out in in small groups wow that's that's great history i like that you said uh it, are you really serious about doing this you know and then if you are, then here's here's the things to do, right? Here's the things not to do, but here's the things to do. Um, that's very helpful because in in what we sometimes hear of people saying, you know, I I want to follow Jesus. I you know I give my life to Jesus, but then there's no real clear clarity as to how to do that. So how helpful it was that John Wesley could um, put those methods together. Okay, so you mentioned in both, and when you were talking both uh, the the well, all of it. You mentioned the societies, the classes, and the bands. So, can you tell us a little bit about what each of those are and what they look like and how they work together? Yeah, so the society is most analogous to uh, what we would think of today as as a local church. So, it's the gathering of Methodists in a particular geographic area. Um, for the most part in England during John Wesley's day, there were there'd be one society and kind of a general community. London was the exception because it was it was a, a big town, really, you know, the biggest community in England and also the hub of Methodism. So there were several societies there. But basically they would gather on a regular basis for worship, um, to have public reading of scripture, to have a sermon read. If there wasn't um someone qualified to to preach, then you would have exhortation, which was the difference was basically you didn't take a text. If you were preaching, you took a sermon text and you preached the text. Uh, exhortation would be more um, encouragement to live a faithful Christian life. Um, what we would often think of today more as like um, sermons that are kind of narrative and 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 really based in, in encouraging stories and so forth, testimony. Uh, and then hymn singing was obviously a really big deal with the impact of Charles Wesley's hymns. Um, this, these were what we would think of today as contemporary worship services. Um, people have commented on the, the tunes for many of the, the Methodist hymns were basically bar tunes, tunes that people would have sung when they were out and about doing non-Christian things. So it was kind of set to uh, the music that, that was familiar to people in, in their current cultural context. Uh, and that's, that is not a, a, 
comment that's intended to disparage traditional worship in any way. I, I, I love both, but that, that that's what it was in its own moment. Um, and every worship is contemporary at some point in time, right before it can become traditional. Um, and then the, the class meeting is, so if you, in a sense, if you think about the society as like a, a, a pizza, the, the class meeting is the slices of the pizza. And it, the reason I'm putting it that way is I want, I want our audience to, to think about that every class, every Methodist was actually the fundamental location for membership, for belonging was not the society meeting. It was actually the class meeting. So to be a Methodist, you had to be in a class meeting and consistently participate in it. Uh, if you were removed from membership more than uh, three times in a quarter, uh, you, if you missed your class meeting more than three times in a quarter, you would be removed from membership, not just in your class meeting, but from Methodism. And you could rejoin if you were willing to, to be consistent in participation. Um, but that was the expectation. And as I said, the basic activity there was there was actually uh, a contribution for relief of the poor that was taken. Uh, then there was uh, an opportunity to sort of give an account of uh, your faithfulness and keeping the general rules. But the main focus was every member had a chance to answer the question, how, how does your soul prosper? So it was a, a check in on your current state and relationship with God. And the, the key thing I think to see at this stage is that Methodism in its beginnings, and this is actually the case when it becomes a church too, uh, is that there, there's actually no space in it for nominal Christianity, by which I mean, there isn't room for someone to say I'm a Christian, but not actually live a Christian life. There's, there's accountability and attentiveness there and, and a frank willingness to, to remove nominal Christians from, from the church. I think in part in confidence that if you don't, if you don't want this to do real work in your life, there are lots of other options. There are other churches you can go to that, that are more nominal and and their approach, but, but we are, a people of a method and to be a Methodist means that you're actually living out the method you're committed to it. Uh, and, and so that was, that's the, the class meeting is the second level. And then the third one is the band meeting. And this is the most intent, intense and kind of uh, really invasive of, of the three groups. Uh, Wesley never required them for membership, but he always fought for them to, to be taken very seriously and, and planted and tended to. He thought they were very important to Methodist vitality. The band meetings had three to five people in them. They were divided by gender and marital status. So single men would be in a group, married women would be in a group and so forth. And the, there were five questions asked at band meetings. Uh, what sins have you committed since our last meeting? Uh, is, how are you tempted? Is there anything that you doubt whether it be sin or not? I, I got the order wrong, but one of them is how are you delivered? So if you were tempted and didn't sin, it would have been in the first question if you did sin, but if you were tempted and then thirdly, how are you delivered? Fourth, is there anything you doubt whether it be sin or not? So is there something that you've done that your conscience isn't completely clean about, but you're not actually sure. And then that gives a chance for the group to say, yeah, that's definitely sin. Put that in the first category or no, I think you're being overly sort of conscientious or too hard on yourself. Uh, and then fifth and most most sort of difficult is is there anything you desire to keep secret uh, and that that actually was redacted it was removed from the general uh, from the band meeting it was called the rules of the band societies there was an, an addition for a period of time where that fifth question went away i think because it was just too intense and uncomfortable for people to answer but the goal wasn't to shame or humiliate people it was this deep confidence that 
that if we bring things into the light, Jesus brings healing and he brings forgiveness. And so if there's something that you want to keep secret because you're ashamed, the, the best way forward for you to hope and healing isn't pushing it farther and farther into the darkness because our, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets as like 12 step groups would talk about. Uh, but it's actually to get the secrets out so that they don't have the same power and energy uh, in your life. And, and also to then be able to, to figure out what needs to be done to find hope and healing in, in the places where there's brokenness. And, and very often for people, the, it's, it's the naming of the secret that actually breaks its power. And there isn't anything else that needs to be done, but to receive words of forgiveness of something that was done to you that was sinful or something that you did deep in the past that was, uh, was sinful. Wow. That's, that's very helpful. And I'm, I'm just sort of seeing how they all fit together. I really like the um, pizza analogy. You made me think of two things before I ask you about how, how they worked um, sort of on a spiritual journey, but there was something about tickets. Well, I remember reading something about tickets. Was that to go yeah. to the, which one? The class meeting. I, I thought I had one here. That's what I was looking for. But class meetings. So at the class meeting level, you got a ticket every quarter. And that was basically your like evidence that you were a Methodist in good standing. And if you didn't attend in that period of time, I talked about basically if you missed more than three times in the next iteration, you just didn't get another class ticket. Um, you'd have to, you'd have to sort of start over, so to speak. So you actually would have in, in 18th and 19th century Methodism, you would have people who had these scrapbooks that were filled with their class tickets because they'd keep them from one quarter to the next. And, you know, if you were a Methodist for 50 years, you have 200 class meeting tickets. Uh, if you've, you know, if you've been attending consistently, they were, they would always have like a, a scripture passage on them they would, and they would have like a, a letter, I think in the top right corner that would just change so that you kind of know where the sequence was. And when it got to Z, it would just go on to the next one. And then there was a, a place somewhere where it had the date so that it actually showed what quarter it was. And then um, a place to sign it for, for somebody's signature. And I think it kind of varied. Sometimes I think the signature was actually the, a signature of the class leader or like a presiding, a, a preacher who was traveling through that they're signing it saying this person is a member in good standing. But I think most often it was signed by the the person themselves. Like this, this is my class ticket. This is kind of my identification card for being connected to Methodism and, and, and right relationship. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I couldn't remember what the tickets were used for, but now that that's helpful. And then one other thing, a ho John Wesley's Holy Club, is that different that was his own journey or is that similar to the bands yeah so that that's uh starts during the oxford movement period when he's uh oxford movements the wrong terminology oxford methodism it's so it's pre-aldersgate it's before he's had his aldersgate experience okay. um richard heights and raider the kind of foremost expert on that period is actually pretty adamant that it's shouldn't be called the Holy club because they didn't apply it to themselves, but it was applied by others almost as like a term of derision. But, um, but yes, that's, that's that phase. It's basically when Wesley realizes that he's not taking his, his life as a follower of Jesus seriously enough. And he starts to be like rigorously disciplined and how he's living his life. He has specific times every day that he prays. Um, they, I think that, that for a period of time, they're meeting together multiple times a week. Uh, they're receiving communion together on a weekly basis. They're visiting people that are in prison on a on a weekly basis, and and those kinds of things. Okay, okay, that's helpful. Um, okay, so 
so back to these uh, societies, classes, uh, and bands. Sort of tell us, like, you know, what is the importance of them in a in in you know spiritual development or mm-hmm. bearing fruit or growth, like, and how they. I mean, even like, what would be similar to them today? Maybe. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, I think the importance today, and I think this was a similar importance they played in, in John Wesley's own lifetime and in the beginnings of Methodism in the U.S. and in Britain, is that their their understanding of being a Christian is that you really are. It's a calling to a new way of life that's that's going to be different, and part of that is going to be that in in the short term you're you're going to have some relational disruption because the ways you were living, some of that will probably need to change as a result of becoming a follower of Jesus. And so some relationships that you had may not be relationships that are good for you to stay in unless those relationships also, like those people become followers of Jesus too. And the way it usually works, some people do and some people don't when someone experiences a, a radical conversion. Um, and and so there there can be damaged relationships, relationships that, that don't sort of move forward as, as a result of, of someone experiencing a, a meaningful conversion. So the class meeting at one level is that it's providing a, a, a new context of support and, and encouragement and fellowship amongst fellow travelers, people who are committed to the same journey. So that if you're experiencing ridicule and, and persecution from your family or your previous closest friends, uh, you have a support group built in at the at the front end, and there were even people in early Methodism who were in class meetings who weren't Christians yet. They were interest; they were like under conviction, but they hadn't actually experienced faith in Christ yet. And so they would already be like plugged into this support uh, this support group. And I think that's important for us today because, in a similar way, I think for people who are not nominally Christian but are are all in. Um, there, there are going to be times where that creates real dissonance and pressure with the world, with the, the dominant culture, uh, and so forth. And so, having a support group in that is, I think, really important. That no, you're not crazy. You're not the only one. Um, but also, like here, here's a fellow believer who is actively walking with Jesus and has a story to tell. And when you show up beat up, frustrated, or dry. Uh, and struggling to hear God's voice or feel God's presence, it can be encouraging to see that this person still is in that space. And so like you can kind of lean into one another's faith in times when, when you're, you're struggling. So it's built for that kind of struggle. The other thing, just very practically that, that, that I would testify to that I've found to be just deeply meaningful is that community is, is the kind of thing that, you have it or you don't when there's a crisis in your life. And the only way that you can have it to rely on in a really deep way when there's a crisis is if you've been like making deposits over a period of time, you can't like just build it ex nihilo out of nothing when everything falls apart and you need people that you know you can trust and that can sort of hold you in the midst of of a season of of trial or suffering or pain. Uh, And that, when that's there, um, it's 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 a precious gift. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I'd been in a, a band meeting uh, for for a few years that actually met online, like we're we're doing now, uh, with people that I had deep relationships with in person, but we all lived in and we lived in three different states, and that that uh, 
that season was very important for me when I found out that my mom had been diagnosed with cancer and was going to have surgery. And I, I remember the morning of the surgery, I'd flown back home to be with my parents and my brother was there too. And, and it was one of those times where as a pastor, I kind of knew that I was going to be the one expected to sort of be the pastor for my family in that, in that, that morning. And, um, and I really didn't want to, I wanted to just get to be Kevin, who was a, a son whose mother was having a serious surgery and was scared, you know, and afraid. And, um, I wanted to just be able to, to be in that role. Um, and also just to be with my dad and my brother as, as a son and brother. And, uh, so I, I dropped them off, parked the car and came back in and they'd already been taken back to a room. So it felt like it was, it was like, Oh, this is, I was expecting it to all move very slowly. And I was like, this feels like it's moving really quick. And I got, I found the room my parents were in and my brother was in, went in it. And my mom had already, she's already in like the guest, you know, the, the, that, uh, hospital gown that's so infamous and in her bed that was going to be wheeled back for surgery. And, and I hadn't been there very long and there was a knock on the door and I, I was like kind of internally panicked, like, Oh, they're about to take my mom. And I thought it was the doctor. And, uh, and it actually in walked like all four of the guys that are in my band meeting who are all pastors and mm -hmm. they came in and, and they all lived in, and they lived, I think all of them at least two hours away. And I think as, as far as four or five hours away, and this was like seven 30 in the morning. So they'd gotten up well before the sun um, to, to get ready and drive in. And they surrounded my family, my mom in bed and, um, and led us in prayer for my mom before she went back for surgery. And I, I called my wife afterwards and just told her like, that was the most precious gift I'd ever been given. Um, I didn't know I needed it. Uh, I didn't ask for it. And, but they knew that I was going to need some, you know, support and encouragement that day. And, and those were, were, were four men who were successful and busy, you know? And so it was also like, I knew it was great sacrifice for them to plan to be there. And that's, that's just a kind of example of the things that I think happen through these places. I, one of the things that's kept me going and, and advocating for this work is I, I hate the idea of people being alone when they're suffering, you know, and, and the only way to, to have the comfort of presence and encouragement in a time of, of real trial and suffering is, is to commit ahead of time to be the kind of person that will care for others when they go through suffering, but also making that, that it, it, it's a long-term thing to have the, the, the thing there, you know, to have the support and encouragement there when you most need it, you, you have to have been investing in it for a season. And that's not the only reason to do it, but it's one that has been a particularly powerful gift in my own life. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I've received that some too. And it's just important to have, like you said, those safe spaces. You can be your real self and you're accepted and loved. And then, like you said, encouraged and cared for during uh, hard times of which we all have. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and, and it's transformational in that because, because you are just living life with each other and you are mm -hmm. able to come. And I like what you said about you know, the questions that they ask even in the bands, because those aren't often things that we talk about, right? We yeah, we can tend to talk about all the, the wonderful stories in the Bible and what Jesus was doing here and there and not really do the reflection. Um, yep. I've heard reflection. Yeah, and I think, I think especially in kind of the social media age, which is kind of infamous for, like, it does a bunch of things that I think can be problematic, but one that, that it 
people have noticed is that it encourages you to put your best self out there, like the prettiest kind of most exciting, you share like all the good stuff. And that can make people feel like, oh, my life's not very good because it doesn't look like, you know, the the top moments that other people are sharing. And it, it can be helpful to have a space where it's not that it's not, it's not that you just share like the things when things are great, but that you, you just share what's actually happening, what's real. And sometimes it is celebratory and it's, it's a blessing to actually have people with skin on with you to share that and, you know, to rejoice with you. Um, but it also is, is, can be really a gift when, you know, I always tell people like, don't apologize for tears. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, and tears are a gift because they show that you're being vulnerable and you're sharing something that's really precious to you. And so for you to invite us into that is, is a gift, it's, it's precious. And, and we are honored by your tears. We're not afraid of them or embarrassed by them. Uh, we're, we're honored that you're, you're able to be present with us in, in that kind of way. Very much so. Um, when we look back in history, we can see how these, uh, this seriousness, this this plan, this method, this these societies and classes and bands work together um, in the in this type of Christian growth, right? We can see, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the times and the and the number of people that were really growing um, in that. And so, maybe this is a little bit of a loaded question, but. Why are we so much more resistant to that today? <laughs> we don't yeah. do these things now. And what is that? Is that us or is it? Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be pretty bold here and I hope it doesn't create problems for you. But I think I, I just read this book by John Mark Comer called live no lies. That is a fantastic book. I highly recommend. And in it, he basically argues that the devil's like primary strategy is lies. Like he, he, kills and destroys a scripture as Jesus says in scripture by lying. He's a, he's a liar and the father of lies. And I think that, I think the church has, has bought a lie, has accepted a, the lie that if you challenge people who come to your church, they won't come back. That, that what people are looking for is like a great feel good experience and it has to cost them nothing and be, sort of on their own terms. And, and that is just, it's just not true. It's a lie. Um, the sociologically it's, it's like a law of sociology that high demand, high expectation churches grow and low demand, low expectation churches decline. So if you want to kill a church, the way to do it is by saying things like open hearts, open minds, open doors, like anybody can come, no expectations, nothing will be asked of you. Just come on in. Um, you, you, in that model, you have an open door to the entrance and an open door to the exit because people will walk through and say nothing interesting is happening here and they'll just walk back out and they'll go to a place. Because if you, if you go to church, you're looking for meaning, you're looking for significance. And if the church doesn't provide it, especially in an increasingly post-Christian context, there's better things you can do with your time. There's more enjoyable things you can do. Uh, and so... The, for me, what I've started saying here and kind of the work that I'm doing is that I believe that people have come to my church, have come to our church, for First Methodist in Waco, because they want to grow in their faith. Because they either are seeking Christ because they have an inkling that there's something to this or because they have faith in Jesus and they want to know how to grow in their faith. And so I say to them, I, I, my assumption is you're here because you want to grow in your faith and that it's then our responsibility to help you figure out where you are and what the next step is that you should take to grow, to, to move forward. 
Um, and so we're working on trying to develop a kind of like the image I always use is the the kiosk in the mall that has the like map of the mall in it because uh, that's that dates me but that's that's the era i grew up in it was cool to go to malls back when i was a kid <laughs> um, and you if if you wanted to know where like the gap was or spencer's or toys r us whatever it was like you had to figure out where you were so you'd look for like the little star sticker that said you are here and so we're working on trying to help people figure out where they are so that they can get to where they want to go uh, and and to know what the next faithful right step is uh, but that 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 requires, I think, um, a willingness to have expectations of the people who come to your church and to to have them be visible and clear and, and named um, so that they can can grow. Um, and and our history, Methodism's history, is that there is no there is not an, an, an example in my as a historian that I've seen where Methodism's had expectations that are clear and actually like can be met by like where the church is like building the infrastructure that's needed for people to meet the expectations uh where the church hasn't grown it it mm. it, it grows and flourishes so there's fruit to to that that experience but i think the answer to your question is is that we american christianity had this consumer-based model for a long time where the way you grow a church is by anticipating the needs of the market and you meet them in the like at the lowest threshold possible so that people just come in and they're like, whoa, this is amazing. And then they just show up and sit in seats and like it's like going to the movies, but it's free. And um and and the that hasn't that hasn't shown to bear fruit, I don't think, long term as far as like people actually growing in their faith. And when the when the culture turns away from thinking that being a Christian is a good thing. Um, which I think increasingly, even in the United States, being a Christian is seen as suspicious at best and increasingly by many people is actually a negative thing. Christians are dangerous because they actually want their agenda is one that we are opposed to and is is bad. And, uh, and to the extent that that's true, a consumer-based model is not, not going to be helpful because no one no one wants to consume it. Like what you need is to offer Jesus in a, in a, in a bold and uh, is winsome. It's good news. So when you proclaim the gospel, it needs to sound like good news. But there is also an element of warning and judgment in Scripture uh, related to the decisions you make about Jesus. There's consequences one way or another, um, and so that Jesus needs to be proclaimed. But there also needs to be space to help people who are converted, who come to faith, to to grow in it. And I think I think we actually have beautiful history and a great track record of doing that really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, that's so good. And you remind me that people uh, live up to the expectation, right? So that's right. Uh, if we lower that expectation, uh, wide is not necessarily uh, better. Um, so you were you you are a local pastor now here uh, at the First United Methodist Church in Waco. Have you been at, at been a, a local pastor too? All I mean, not local pastor, or ordained. Um, elder all this time while you've been teaching or how are you just back into it again? Yeah. So I, I straight from seminary, I went into the local church and pastored a, a, a small town church in Lamont, Oklahoma for three years and uh, was ordained in that period of time. And then I started my PhD and this is the first time that I am like fully on staff and appointed to a local church. Since then I had been appointed to, PhD program and then to seminary context um, since then. And um, so that, yeah, that, that this has, has been a, a significant change. So are you excited to be back uh, in that? And can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, now you're getting to implement a lot of the stuff you've been talking and teaching about for a long time. So can you tell us about what you're doing? 
Yeah, it's been, it's been really energizing. I've, I've loved it. it I've, one of the things that kind of was happening in me was I, I had a sense that my, my calling to kind of the academic side wouldn't be wasted, but that, but that it would be expressed in a different way. Um, and so like I, I'm uh, teaching a class at, at Truett at the Wesley House of Study at Baylor um, on Methodist history in the spring. So there's like ways I'm still getting to do that part of my, my academic work, but there was a sense that uh, part of the thing I, I struggle with in, in theological education is that almost like sometimes being in the local church is like beneath you or it's a lesser calling. And I actually think it's the ultimate calling. Um, and I, I think that that training people to serve well in the local church is very important and, and essential and something I think we've largely failed, not done very well. I think there's a tremendous amount of room to do it better um, on the whole. But that that service in the local church, th- this is where it happens. I mean, the 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 point of the Christian life is is the Great Commission, uh, according to Jesus Himself, and that that happens historically best in in communities where where the church is is actually visible in a kind of clear, tangible way, where public worship is you know happens and where the life of the church is ordered and organized. So for me, it's been awesome to, to get to step back in that way. Um, it, it is, uh, it's been energizing. I've gotten to preach several times, which I've loved. Um, we have a, a midweek, a uh, couple times a year that goes for eight weeks. And I got to, to teach, uh, an eight week session in that, which was a lot of fun. There's a Monday, a Wednesday morning men's Bible study that I'm teaching right now in first and second Thessalonians and just being back in Bible study in that way of, of walking through scripture, verse by verse, uh, with men who are so committed they'll you know they'll get up early and and come come into church to be together to pray and to to study scripture is uh that's been super encouraging to me too um our church is it's it's strength historically has been sunday school and and so what i've been trying to do in, in the first few months here is um to to understand the culture that's here and to appreciate it and see its strengths and also to begin to notice places where there's room for growth and where there's room for improvement. Um, and so to my own kind of surprise, I've actually primarily been focusing on kind of what I would say is like adult education um, and, and our church and uh, appreciating it, giving expressing thanks to the teachers that we have and so forth. Uh, but then also noticing like one of the next things I'll be doing is trying to figure out how to, to bring like a, a kind of systemized approach so that our midweek studies are sequenced so that somebody, for example, can, if somebody's never taken a course, an eight week course in like basic Christian doctrine, like we'll have that developed and in so that then it can be offered on a regular basis so that people can say, okay, I need to take like a theology 101 because I haven't, I haven't mastered that material yet or been exposed to it. We'll also have an Old Testament survey and a New Testament survey in, in that space. So that's that's kind of where I've been working. Um, in the the new year, we're going to start actually launching class meetings. We have multiple campuses here, and so I'm I'm figuring out my goal is going to be in the new year to launch like a pilot group at at the, the campuses, uh, and then the hope is that those groups will become carriers of the DNA, and that that my hope is that they will on the front end know that the, the expectation is that those groups won't be intended to be permanent, but will be the, the launch point for uh, when the groups get to where, like you were talking about having, having a significant number of, of groups uh, in your context. And so my hope is that those groups will then 
go out sort of two by two to, to start new groups. Uh, and that'll be kind of the closer to the like real launch phase. But our, my goal is what I've been kind of offering at our church is, is that that kind of you are here thing and trying to be about expectations is that I want people who are actively growing in their faith to commit to three things a week, corporately uh, worship. I want, you know, I want them to attend a, a weekly worship service at one of our campuses. I want them to participate in a, a weekly uh, group that is focused on understanding the faith, Christian beliefs and scripture, you know, that have, have a place like that, that they're committed to. Um, and then thirdly to be in a, a small group that is focused not on cognitive understanding of the faith, but on the lived experience of the faith, what's actually happening. And basically the learning to look at your life through the lens of the gospel. So what, what's God doing in my life? Am I paying attention? Uh, and am I being obedient and faithful to, to what, what God is up to? Um, so those are kind of the, the three things that I'm, I'm inviting folks into. We do the first one exceptionally well, I think, already. The second one we do very well. And the third one is what needs to really be brought online. So that's that's where the, the work will, will be focused over the next year, year and a half. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, we'll have to check back in with you and find out how how that's been forming and how God is using that. But I really do like the um, the mall example of where are you? Because that tells mm-hmm. people like, hey, okay, now I know where I need to get to. Um, Kevin, this has been really good. I'd like to ask, uh, as sort of a closing question. Um, yeah, you, we are, we have a lot of listeners that some of them are disciple makers. They're in that uh, phase of really pouring in and having those transparent, uh, conversations in their discipleship groups, and then hopefully encouraging them, uh, to uh, become also intentional with another group of people or one-on-one, whatever the Lord puts on their heart. Um, we also have Sunday school teachers that listen, and we have um, pastors from other churches and stuff that listen. So what little bit of encouragement from what you've shared with us today uh, with all of the methods and uh, even the new context of what church is now versus when Wesley was uh, getting started, um, what encouragement or wisdom do you have to share with us as we close? Yeah, I think I would say that the— the, the desperate need in, in the world today is for deeply committed, um, well-formed, discipled followers of Jesus Christ. And they're in, in life, whether you're a pastor or a lay person on staff or whether you're just a, a normal Christian um, or not, that they're, the world will, will pull at you to distract you from that task in every way possible. Um, and, and so I just would, would end with like just a basic reminder that that's the priority. That's the number one focus. That's the key task. And that if you keep that in pride of place in your own life first, and then in your own work, uh, and I would say that every person who is a follower of Jesus is capable and called to disciple others, to be discipled and to disciple others. Um, and if you'll keep that in pride of place in, in your life, I that's the number one thing I think you can do actually to have a fulfilling life that when, when, you know, if, if you're the kind of person who comes to a point where you realize that your life is ebbing, it's beginning to end, um, that you'll, you will be so grateful that you spent time and energy growing in your own faith, but also pouring into others. Those will be the people that will be with you, um, you know, in the end and make it a priority to, to celebrate your life and what God has done through it uh, when your life is, 
you know, when you transition from this life to the next. And um, I think it's, it's so easy to lose sight of that and to lose perspective and, and kind of be overrun by, by other priorities um, and, and to, to forget. And I would say, especially for me, uh, maybe for folks in kind of my age range, we have three kids who are all at home and, and school aged and it can, there's a tremendous temptation to allow other things to be the priority in your kids' lives. Um, and I think that my, my, my great fear for my generation and for myself as a parent is that will our kids leave our households and will our lives have modeled for them that baseball is the priority or band is the priority or gymnastics is the priority, whatever it is, right? And not Jesus. Um, or will we have shown by the way we spend our time and the things that we do first, um, that, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the best thing there is, the source of fulfillment and hope and joy and meaning in our lives. Um, and I think that's a, it's a tremendous challenge. It's actually not that complicated at, at one level, but it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to, to make those decisions, but I just would end by saying like, I, you won't regret it though. If, if you, if you make that decision and you actually live it out, um, you won't regret it. Oh, such good wisdom. Will uh, our time and our priority reflect that Jesus is our Lord? What a good question for us to just ponder yeah. the rest of the day. And like you said, it's not easy, but it is yep. good. It is good. Yep. Kevin, what a blessing it has been just to talk with you and learn from you and uh, be inspired by the work that God is doing in and through you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. If this podcast has blessed you today, I would encourage you to share it with a friend or someone that you know who would like to be serious and, uh, and make Jesus the priority of their life. Until next time, God bless each of you. For more information, check out our website, 419disciplemakers.org. 